0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. The U.S. exports lots of things. Dental products, rubber pipes, wallpaper, soup. But those things are just a trap in the bucket. Fractions of 1% of what goes out the door. The real money in exports is in things like gold and soybeans and corn. But there's a very strange U.S. export that's bigger than gold or soybeans
1: or corn. What you're doing is exporting a blood product. I mean it it is blood. It's it's plasma. So it's the yellow stuff. It's the it's the yellow liquid part of blood.
0: Rose George is a journalist and the author of the book Nine Pints, a journey through the
1: money, medicine and mysteries of blood. So that's what the US is um it, it's called the OPEC of plasma because it exports so much of it. Blood, or plasma,
0: seems like an odd business for a country to be in, since it's not something that most of us even think of as a business. And I had no idea that the U.S. was the OPEC of it. I've heard of the real OPEC, the one that has Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Venezuela in it, the one that decides how much oil to put into the world market. But the fact that America is such a big exporter of something that we hardly ever think about, it tells you a lot about the hidden story of blood. It's something we've all got, of course, and its mysteries surround us. Mysteries that often
1: seem to be tangled up in money. And if you look back in history, you can find in New York and other cities in the U.S., even around the 1940s and 50s, professional blood sellers still touting their trade. And uh, they were, you know, living in hostels. They were unionized at one point in New York. And it was seen as perfectly acceptable to sell blood.
0: Blood, then, is both a commodity, something that can be traded between one person and another, And it's something that sets you apart. Think, for example, about what your blood type is. Do you know it? For most of human history, we had no idea that people had different blood types, that that was a way of distinguishing ourselves. It's something that scientists only realized in about 1900. But in certain places, like Japan, there's a strong sense that who you are, how you behave, it's
1: all tied to blood type. Job interviews are decided on it, and uh, dating is decided on it. You can get dating agencies where you're, uh, you know, graded by blood type or sorted according to blood type, and you can get lunch boxes with your blood type on them, um, books about blood type are massive bestsellers, uh, blood type diets. I mean, it's really, it's really a big thing. I think it's probably even more powerful than a horoscope. Actually,
0: Rose George realized that our reliance on blood to categorize, to heal, it was quite extraordinary. And as she got deeper into understanding the new business of blood, she began paying a lot of attention to the stuff.
1: If I see blood, I draw blood on my, say, my arm or something, I'll immediately just watch the blood clot because it's such an amazing process. And I now understand a little bit more about what's happening and how complex it is. Lots of things are rushing towards the site of injury in my blood system and it's just astonishing to me. So it's never mundane anymore. I always watch.
0: It is this very miraculousness that makes blood, as I mentioned before, so valuable and makes the country that we're living in, apparently, the OPEC of plasma. The way in which we've achieved that title is controversial, but the world's hunger for blood, our blood in recent decades, that's not controversial at all.
1: Yeah, it's an absolutely huge export business in the U.S., and the U.S. is the biggest exporter of plasma in the world. And I think it exports; it's pretty much on a par with the the revenue from medium-sized car exports. So, I mean, it's big; it's really big business. Wow. The money and the business is in the stuff that then gets what's called fractionated, so refined and refined and refined into uh, using infinitesimal substances inside plasma, which then goes into pharmaceutical products. So what we're actually talking about is pharmaceuticals.
0: Now, I have uh, read that um, the U.S. is a little bit unusual amongst developed countries because we pay people um, uh, sometimes. Sometimes people donate blood, but sometimes people are paid to give blood or plasma. Um, Why are we different? And is that why we are like the OPEC of plasma?
1: a word yes so um, actually the US is really interesting because you it's actually not illegal to sell your I'm going to say red blood just to differentiate so it's not illegal to sell your whole blood so what happens in the US is you can go to a blood donor center or a community blood bank or whatever and you'll give a donation and you will not you might get a trinket or something but you're not going to get any kind of cash payment or credit card or whatever but if you go to a plasma center, even though they call it a donor center, and even though they'll talk about a plasma donation, it is actually a transaction. And you hmm. will get 25 to $30. And depending on how frequently you donate, um, you might get more than that. But it, it is a transaction. So there has been this kind of fork in the road in the U.S. where one blood product is seen as it's unacceptable to sell whole blood, even though it's not actually illegal in the U.S., but it is seen as unacceptable and it's kind of fallen out of fashion and become a social no-no, whereas it's completely acceptable to sell your plasma. And in fact, the US is the only country in the world that lets you sell your plasma up to twice a week. No other country allows such frequency. So you can can make a living out of it. The question is, and the question that some academics and researchers um, are posing is, who is selling this? And Is it going to be people who really need the money who end up selling their plasma and therefore is it ethical?
0: Right. Well, there's been research, a researcher at Case Western Reserve University um, not long ago looked at uh, where these plasma donation but as you said they're really people get paid for giving their plasma um these centers are around cleveland and she found they're in mostly like low-income areas and and when you look at what people are doing with the money they're getting food or they're getting like very basic the sort of their very basic needs met um with this money is it What do you think of the idea of having people sell stuff? And in fact, even though you could look at the U.S. as like such an outlier, if other countries are importing our plasma, does that mean there's a a need for it? And in some ways, they're part of our business, this business of buying plasma, too.
1: But the thing in the U.S., what, what what concerns me is exactly that if you look at um, the geographical locations of plasma centers, selling centers, sales areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been done across the US. So uh, there has been research looking at their locations nationwide. And mm-hmm. it is a little bit worrying. They're not all in low income areas, but there are a lot of them that are near homeless shelters or you know, church centers or food banks or So you have to wonder, yes, why are people doing this and what are they buying? And if it's to buy necessities, then how ethical is it that we're letting people sell? Okay, it's a replenish your body part. The reason you're allowed to give plasma twice a week is that you will replenish it. But the research into what the health impacts of giving so much plasma away twice a week, it's not really there yet. And we don't really know. Mm -hmm. Anecdotally, there are lots of quite worrying reports about how people feel faint or pass out or just generally maybe have immune uh, issues. A friend of mine was saying when she lived in the US, she needed money. She was a student. Um, Students are a very big market for the plasma industry. And she said that she noticed that as soon as she stopped giving plasma and came back to the UK, she immediately got a few immune issues. Now, that's only anecdotally. And the plasma Mm. industry will immediately say there are plenty of people who feel no ill effects and and it's not a negative industry in any way and it does a lot of people need these products which is true but i think there are questions to be asked about who is selling the plasma and why hmm. um
0: you talk about when you think about the invention of the way that we deal with blood now um you talk about a kind of remarkable woman who did a lot of her work in the middle of the 20th century um, and she was incredibly sort of inventive in how she thought about blood, how she, how we should store it. Do you want to? Do you want to talk about her?
1: Oh, I do. I always want to talk about her. Yeah, <laughs> I think she's amazing. <laughs> she's an absolute hero of mine. Um, so Janet Vaughan, who is sometimes described as Virginia Woolf's cousin, but was so much more interesting than that. But you know, she was. From that kind of social background, so she was she was. was she really
0: Virginia Woolf's cousin or no? Yeah,
1: she yeah she really was Virginia Woolf's cousin. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And um, <laughs> in fact, one of the so she was a she did medical sciences um at Oxford. She got a first class degree, even though she was probably dyslexic, and even though she hadn't really had a decent education, and she'd been dismissed as too stupid to be educated. But anyway, um. She got her first class degree and then began working as a pathologist in a hospital. Um, and she decided that she was, a, she was a really good socialist. And at the time, in like the 1920s and 30s, she was coming across lots of particularly women and children in, in the slums of the East End in London who were really suffering from anemia. So she really wanted to fix it. And at the time, the treatment was arsenic. So she thought that's not really a good idea. So she read a paper by an American doctor called George Mino, and um, she decided that the best thing to do would be to mince raw liver. So, But she didn't have enough mincers, so she had to go around borrowing all the minces. So um, one of the great episodes of hematological history is uh, Janet Vaughan in her kitchen using Virginia Woolf's mincer. To mint raw liver, to, to then take the extract herself to see if it worked, and when she survived and and went to work the next day, they they decided yes that that might be a good treatment, and that became the standard treatment. So that was the mm. kind of woman she was. But is this
0: mincer, by the way? Is this like some sort of a grinder thing where you yeah, mince the liver? Yeah, that, Okay, yeah. got it. Got it. Exactly like okay. a kitchen
1: a kitchen grinder. So she she got was. It. I don't know, exactly know what she was doing, but she was kind of making raw liver juice, I suppose, and then feeding that to people. And um, and it worked because, of course, it was it was really high in iron and it, it obviously worked better than arsenic, which was the standard treatment. Um, right. She got no credit for that whatsoever. Some male doctor took the credit and that was pretty much par for the course. But the reason that we should all really be grateful to Janet Vaughan is that before, just before the Second World War, she uh, was... Pretty much the only person to notice that, although London was preparing to be bombed by the Germans and so was preparing millions of cardboard coffins and pulling down railings and all, all sorts of preparations, but the one thing it didn't have in stock was blood, and in fact, it only had eight pints in the entire city, and that was wow, I think those were in maternity wards, so Janet yeah. looked at this and was like, "hmm. That's not going to work because she knew she'd uh, she was friends with um, a few Spanish doctors and she looked at the Spanish Civil War where they'd been they'd realised that one of the things you need in wartime, particularly when there's civilian casualties, is you need blood because increasingly transfusion was being used to treat trauma. She she looked at Spain and she thought, well, we need something similar here, so. She got her peers together, and they devised a system for London of mass blood donation and transfusion and delivery of blood to hospitals, and um, and she was pretty much instrumental in setting that up. So along with a couple of other heroic people who were working on mass blood donation, she pretty much set up our National Blood Service, and it probably wouldn't be there without her today, but she doesn't really have any credit for that.
0: Well, wow. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Rose George, the author of Nine Pints, A Journey Through the Money, Medicine, and Mysteries of Blood. So let's look for a second at blood types. Um, a lot of people do know their blood type. Uh, a lot of people may not know or not remember. But you say where you're from can actually help dictate what your blood type is. Um, so if you're Asian, there's a much lower chance that you're going to have type A blood than a Caucasian person. What do we know about blood types and then, like, where people are from in the world?
1: Well, yeah, it is really interesting because, as you say, more Caucasians have type A blood, only 20% of Asians. Um, And there is some understanding that it's probably, that could be to do with what diseases are endemic in different parts of the world. It's a theory, but it it does seem to correlate with, for example, O-type blood is, particularly susceptible to cholera, something to do with how it works in the intestine. And so areas where there is a lot of malaria, there seems to be fewer people with O-type blood. So it's that kind of thing. Mm. It's really nice yeah. kind of evolutionary um, logic. But yeah, blood types fascinate me because cause nobody knows really what their blood type is. And, and of course, you don't really need to, because if you, were, if you had an awful accident, God forbid, then you would be given O-type blood, which is the universal... Blood transfusion, and then pretty quickly you, your blood would be cross matched, and you would get a more uh, specialized blood type. But I just think it's so fascinating. I think it's so fascinating that I think it's kind of part of your identity, and yet many of us don't really know what it is.
0: When you think about the science that's going on right now with blood, um, what what sort of jumps out to you? What direction? What sort ter- of you know, if somebody was going to take a look at the next five, ten, fifteen years and think like, what's on the horizon for how blood is going to be dealt with differently, or what we're going to come up with? What do you see?
1: Well, the what's called the holy grail of blood research is synthetic blood. So, if we could get something that mimics blood pretty much entirely, then imagine how. That would change things, and um, it would be freely available, and we wouldn't have to ask people for their blood, and we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have the risks of not knowing what's what diseases or trouble is going to come through the blood system. Although we, in the U.S. and in the U.K., we're very fortunate to have a very safe blood system that very carefully screens donations. But if we didn't have to do that, if it was synthetic and known to be safe, that would make such a huge difference. So. For many years, lots, so much money has been poured into looking for a synthetic blood. We're still not really there. They can now grow red blood cells in the lab, which do perform like red blood cells, but they're extremely expensive. And so really over the next five to 10 years, I think that I was told that they would probably only be used for perhaps very rare blood conditions. So we're nowhere near, as far as I know, we're nowhere near finding anything that is as useful or as cheap as the stuff that comes out of someone's arm. Mm. The other thing that um, you'll, if I used to get a few alerts for, for things, and one of the things that I got an alert from pretty much every day, I would find something on what was always referred to as a simple blood test. So it was a simple blood test that could reveal cancer or dementia or or, or whatever, insert whichever horrible condition you choose. And there'd be some kind of report that, oh, we're very close to a simple blood test for this. And the fact is that we're, we're really not. Hmm. Blood is a, a really wonderful window into many, many things. As a diagnostic tool, it's it's exceptional. But it's not a tricorder. It's not a Star Trek tricorder. And it's, it's still quite far from being a Star Trek tricorder. So, you know, those magic devices that they have on Star Trek, which can diagnose absolutely everything you need yeah blood is not there yet but I mean the potential is huge and it's 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 exciting
0: well it reminds me a little bit of the story of um, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos that that big company that really the idea was to diagnose things really easily from blood um, and be in drugstores all over the place the company ended up sort of collapsing in a cloud of fraud um, because they couldn't really do what they claimed to do Um, but that like you say that was this sort of hope that like it can be simple and easy and um, we can find out so much from just a little bit of blood
1: well I think a lot of what Theranos got away with was was because it was built on a very big tower of wishful thinking and Mm -hmm. we all wanted it to be true we all wanted this fingertip finger prick um, test that could tell us all sorts of things, which currently may only be done with invasive testing or, you know, waiting weeks for results or things like that. We all want this magic, simple blood test. And I think she was Elizabeth Holmes and her company was persuasive enough that they managed to fool a lot of people. But I, c- I can't believe that a lot of sensible blood experts weren't looking at that company and thinking that's, no, there's, there's something wrong there.
0: Do you think about when? Do you think about blood differently now than when you embarked on this project? Is there something that you that kind of switched in the way that you think about this thing that's obviously inside us It's all around us?
1: um I suppose I thought we knew everything about it, but we absolutely don't and i I think that's really fascinating um in terms of my personal reaction to blood i'm I've always been quite at ease with. My own blood, anyway. So I've always been quite happy to give blood. I enjoy giving blood. I find it really soothing. Um, something about the, you know, when you see your blood rocking in that plastic bag next to you. I don't know. I find it quite comforting to think that that stuff is kind of pumping, it's being pumped around your body constantly. And and because I'm a runner, I'm a really keen runner. I do, I have started to think about my blood quite differently in that context. So I do think about endurance and stamina and what you know what my blood's doing and so yeah in, in that way I've definitely got a different perspective on blood but yeah I've always liked it.
0: Rose George is a journalist she's the author of the book Nine Pints a journey through the money medicine and mysteries of blood. Rose thanks
1: so much. You're very welcome. Well I met you at the blood bank
0: We'll have more on America being the OPEC of plasma and the story of who is supplying that plasma on our website, innovationhub.org.